Welcome back to a honeyed New Year's edition of Sounds Jewish. We have with us a true giant of Jewish, nay, global literature. None other than Howard Jacobson is here to discuss his new, acclaimed and controversial novel, The Finkler Question. Is his depiction of a fictional Jewish anti-Zionist group as the Ashamed Jews a fair one? Amid this festival frenzy, we take a look at an innovative new project in New York designed to reclaim one of those holy days often neglected, Sukkot. Sukkot, for us, was little more than a bit of plastic sheeting. And to give it a bit of pathetic cheer, annually they dust off some plastic uh, fruit. The Jewish Community Centre for London, our sponsors here of Sounds Jewish, are demolishing a prestigious site this month as their new building gets underway in North London. We'll be talking to the JCC's top man, Nick Viner. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. Welcome to my first guest this month, Howard Jacobson. Fantastic to have you here, Howard. Congratulations on uh, your new book, The Finkler Question. Thank you very much, and my pleasure to be here. Well, it is that time of year. You notice the the, the leaves are turning. Uh, We're talking of Sikot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Do these uh, occasions hold some symbolism for you? It's usually the time of the year when I have a novel out, so to that degree, and therefore I'm, I mark my I mark my ages. No, no, they do have a they do have a significant. I I like this time of the year. As a child, did they mean something to you? I mean, obviously, it's a kind of back to school kind of feeling for for many kids. But it was it's always tinged with a few days off here, missing a bit of homework, and also having to go to shul when no one else does. Well, I was a swatty boy, and I did not like going to shul, so none of that was any pleasure. But I did like I did like suckers because that had a kind of festive Keatsian melancholy autumnal playing around in the garden thing. I liked that. Yeah, and you know, yont of outfits for you. No, I don't think I had special Yontov outfits, no. We, we, we did have time off school, and this was an opportunity for the nearest thing that we had to an anti-Semitic teacher to comment on how tanned we all looked when we got back. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, it, I mean, it's a very, it is a sort of strange time for, for Jewish boys, and I've always felt you know, when one's relationship with Judaism has kind of you know, changed over the years, that the, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur itself, has been the one for me that I could never have the guts to kind of to ignore. I've been away for Rosh Hashanah, I've been at film festivals, I've been abroad and not come back, too much to the chagrin of my parents, but for Yom Kippur, for the Day of Atonement, I'm there. Fasting. Fasting, whatever I can do. Yeah, I've needed to break that one sometimes, whether that was out of uh, a natural desire to be transgressive or just being lazy or just being hungry. I don't know, but it's also an opportunity for guilt. I do feel very guilty around it. I'm not, I don't have a good record at keeping it, but when I have kept it, or even when I've not kept it and I've gone to shul and I hear the chauffeur blowing, unless it's the chauffeur the night before, I can never remember that. The chauffeur gets me anyway. That one gets me. The one blast. Yeah, that, 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 that does it. That, that goes deep, deep down into something. Well, as Howard Jacobson says, this is the time of year in which he normally publishes a novel. So, to the Finkler question. Howard Jacobson's latest novel tells the story of one man, non-Jewish, who wants to be a Jew, and his old-school buddy, Sam Finkler, who's proud to be an ashamed Jew. That's the name of a group of Jewish anti-Zionists who meet at the Groucho Club in Soho to pour scorn and condemnation on Israel. Now, Howard, you're going to read uh, to us from the Finkler question a sort of passage that maybe highlights that. Can you tell us where you're where you're, we're dipping into? Yes. Well, this is the Finkler, who is one of the three male heroes of the book. Um, 
appears on, he's a well-known Jewish philosopher who appears on the media a great deal and writes homespun philosopher books like Nietzsche in the Kitchen and things like that. Um, And he is invited on to Desert Island Discs and goes on to Desert Island Discs against his wife's wishes. His wife, by the way, is not Jewish, but as often happens with a non-Jewish wife, is far more Jewish, loyal to Judaism and interested in Judaism than he is. He's sort of kicked it, really. He's kicked the Jewish habit and kicked all things Jewish and particularly kicked Israel. While he is on Desert Island Discs, he makes a big show of the warmth of his Jewish past, which is not true, um, in order that he can then say, but I am deeply ashamed of one thing, um, and that is Israel. And um, a group of people um, who are looking for a spiritual leader hear him on Desert Island Disc and invite him to join and even lead their group. And this group call themselves Ashamed Jews. Finkler comes up with the idea that the ash, that the ash part of Ashamed should be capitalised, so it's capital A-S-H, Ashamed Jew, which is not Ashamed Jews, which is an opportunity for me to have some satiric fun, more satiric than I normally am, actually, at the expense of um, such people insofar as they exist, and it's up to the reader to decide whether they do. You mentioned earlier that there, is, there was a question about the fairness of this. There is no question about the fairness of this. It's entirely unfair in the way that satire should be but i'll read it read you let's dip into one of their meetings i will every other wednesday festivals and high holy days permitting finkler met with fellow ashamed jews at the groucho club in soho not all of them dreamed of punching their fathers in the stomach as finkler did some still felt a tender attachment to the faith in which they'd been nurtured Hence their having to make their excuses when an ashamed Jew night clashed with what they were still Jewish enough to call Yom Tov. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, Shavuos, Purim, Pesach, Hanukkah and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all, as Finkler said. As for the others, they were free to be whatever sorts of Jews they wanted. The group was nothing if not heterogeneous. It included Jews like Finkler, whose shame comprehended the whole Jewish caboodle and who didn't give a hoot about a high holy day, and Jews who knew nothing of any of it, who had been brought up as Marxists and atheists or whose parents had changed their names and gone to live in rural Berkshire where they kept horses and who only assumed the mantle of Jewishness so they could throw it off. The logic that made it impossible for those who had never been Zionist to call themselves ashamed Zionist did not extend to Jews who had never been Jews. To be an ashamed Jew did not require that you had been knowingly Jewish all your life. Indeed, one among them only found out he was Jewish at all in the course of making a television programme in which he was confronted on camera with who he really was. In the final frame of the film, he was disclosed weeping before a memorial in Auschwitz to dead ancestors who, until that moment, he had never known he'd had. It could explain where I get my comic genius from, he told an interviewer for a newspaper, though by then he had renegotiated his new allegiance. Born a Jew on Monday, he had signed up to be an ashamed Jew by Wednesday and was seen chanting, We are all Hezbollah, outside the Israeli embassy on the following Saturday. 
Howard Jacobson reading from the Finkler question here on Sounds Jewish. Uh, Howard, uh, you say it is an unfair, uh, totally in the way that satire should be, an unfair depiction of um, a Jewish anti-Zionist group. Um, But people will quickly recognise several groups that uh, that are sort of at large. What made you turn your eye on them this time in literature? Well, I hope they will recognise them. And when I say it's unfair, I mean this is a novel and not a polemic, I hope. The novel was being written at the time, had been conceived before Operation Cast led the Israeli invasion of, airborne invasion of Gaza, and it was being written at the time of that. And it was being written at the time when, as it seemed to me, certainly as I wrote in some of my articles, wild things were being said um, about Israel, about what Israel was doing, and indeed, um, as a consequence of that, sometimes about Jews. And at a time when perfectly reasonable Jews, it seemed to me, paused to ask themselves, was it possible, was it possible that there was spilling out of attitudes to Israel um, a new form of anti-Jewishness? Was Israel creating a new form of anti-Jewishness? Was Israel an opportunity for an old form of anti-Jewishness that had never gone away to speak itself again? But anyway, however one explained it, was it growing dangerous to be a Jew in England? Did now? you yourself attend uh, meetings such as this? There, I mean, there are the, 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 the group, the Independent Jewish Voices, for no. example, who kind no. of publicly like, call, call for meetings and, and call for spiritual leaders, like, your, like the man in the book, like Sam Finkler has been but taken. It. Did you actually get, get letters asking you? No. Well, I... The, there was no way I would get letters asking me. Perhaps had I asked to go, I would have been allowed to go. Um, for several reasons, I didn't, I didn't want to. Um, a, I, I have to think of my heart, and I didn't want to you know, explode uh, because I felt that some of them would have made me very angry. I read things. I read plenty. I read enough to know what it was that people I part agreed with, didn't agree with, violently disagreed with, were saying on the subject. I felt I was up with what was being said. Mm. But anyway, I was certainly not for the purpose of this novel wanting to be a reporter. What did you find on the internet when you were reading? What did it make you feel as well when you saw accusations from all sides? Long before I I even knew that I had passions about Israel, I smelt a rat in the way in which people were were talking. And and one of the rats that I felt I I smelt, one of them was definitely the rat of anti-Semitism. And when on occasions I felt I smelt the rat of anti-Semitism in Jews, then I was particularly interested. Then I was not just a literary critic, I was a Freudian. Were you, were you surprised at that feeling? It's something that you've raised before in, in your books, the self-hating Jew, the self-loathing Jew. It's something you've talked about before. But it's never seemed to have raised as much. You've used the, the image of the rat before in Kaluki Nights, no less. Um, but this, this seemed to provoke something, a softer spot or a more sensitive spot uh, than ever before. Yeah, well, I don't like I don't like Jews not liking themselves. I think Jews should should uh, like themselves. Or and and I think if Jews don't like themselves, then they should just be somebody else and go away somewhere. Just sometimes you feel that what's being said is goes beyond the criticism of a country, and it's the criticism of something else. The criticism of a culture, the criticism of a people, the criticism of a way of thinking, the criticism of a whole way in which people have imagined themselves for a long time. These people are often defend themselves, say they're very proud Jews, as you say, uh, but they are simply opposed to Israel. These can exist, those two feelings. Oh, of course they can exist. Of course, absolutely, of course they can exist. And I'd be very surprised if they didn't exist. And they ought to exist. And Israel would want them to exist. And if you are a, if you are a friend of Israel, if you are a friend of Jews, and you think something is happening out there that you don't like, of course you should say so. But it is a bit odd, isn't it, how much time gets spent on it? It is a bit odd that we're even having this conversation, you know, about... 
feeling feeling what you can say because we don't say that about other countries we don't we don't scratch our head and worry about how what Russia is doing at the moment or even what America is doing at the moment it's the special attention that Israel draws that fascinates me and forces I would have thought any reasonable thinker to ask the question what is the nature of this special attention why does it exercise us why does it exercise me quite so obsessively is this the Finkler question it's one of the Finkler questions there are many, uh, which are, but the, the, the sort of essence of, of, of being Jewish, the essence of being a Finkler, is, is that kind of talk. Well, I don't know whether the book is, enti- is that. I mean, I've seen the book described often as, you know, how Jacobson worrying away about Jewish identity. I'm not sure I worry about Jewish identity. I don't think I've ever worried about my Jewish identity. I'm a novelist, so I'm writing about... This is a novel about love. When I began this novel, it was a novel about love. It was a novel about how you feel when you've lost somebody you love, how you remember that love. At what point remembering that love is itself abnormal and morbid? And at what point should we forget? So it's about love and memory and forgetting. And it's about love and memory and forgetting among a group of people who happen to be Jews because I knew I know Jews better than I know anybody else. That it turned out then to be about memory and love as it affects us you might say, nationally, forgetting or not forgetting Israel, loving or not forget or not loving Israel, doesn't make it the more Jewish. It just gives me an opportunity to think of those questions beyond the individual case. And it brilliantly brings in sort of stratas of London society and the media uh, as well, in which, of course, you, you operate yourself. So uh, there is a kind of a love-hate situation with the situation you're in. Absolutely. You write about the world that you know, and the world that, you, and the world that I happen to know as I was writing this was much affected by these stories and I was I was about to say I was going to work but I don't go to work I sit at my desk but nonetheless I was writing for a newspaper in which I write my column for the independent in which some very very harsh and I thought more than harsh I thought hysterical and illogical and at sometimes I thought downright dishonest things were being said about this subject and um, mainly the paper allowed me to address these person person to person so of course that's got in that's got in to the novel. The novel is very heated at these. It's a hot novel, actually. It's a hot novel, not just about the politics, insofar as you can call that politics, but it's a hot novel about about loss. Howard, in the, in the interest of balance, which you so often serve yourself in The Independent, as you said, I'm going to bring in another guest here, Tony Clug, who is, uh, has been writing about the Middle East conflict for 40 years in books and journals, and uh, uh, falls part of the uh, first uh, edition of A Time to Speak Out by the Independent Jewish Voices Group. You were an early signatory to them, Tony, and you have an essay in, in their book. Um, is, is Howard's portrayal of uh, the ashamed Jews uh, a just one? Well, I'm not sure to what extent it is intended to be a just one. Um, he himself has remarked that it's somewhere between, I think, a figment of his imagination and um, a description of a group. Uh, I would say it's something of a parody. Um, I mean, one of the questions I would have, and I think he's alluded to this already, is whether he made any attempt to actually speak to any of the movers or shakers. Mm. I realise you don't want to be a journalist. Uh, in approaching this, but it might have helped inform your own attitudes because there are at least the sin of omission uh, insofar as ashamed Jews is supposed to relate to independent Jewish voices. A lot of the people involved in independent Jewish voices regard themselves as Zionists, uh, not as anti-Zionists. In fact, um, they see in the independent Jewish voices an opportunity to express their Zionism. Of course, there are many who are anti-Zionists at all. That's the point. It's a It's a broad uh, church. But they see the Israeli policies of recent years uh, as themselves as anti-Zionists. 
insofar as the idea of Zionism was to normalize relations between Jews and other peoples, to normalize relations internally among uh, the Jews themselves, and to exercise self-determination within their ancient homeland, they see the policies of the Israeli government over recent years antithetical to all those things. To me, it isn't a huge mystery. Israel has made itself very unpopular. It says that it speaks on behalf of Jews over the world quite explicitly. Uh, and many Jews wish to dissociate themselves from that claim. The ashamed Jews is not a parody of independent Jewish voices. I know about independent Jewish voices, but I never thought I was doing independent Jewish voices. If you like, I felt I was trying to catch a wider number of people mm. in, my, in, my, in my comic net. Uh, if you take the name itself, independent Jewish voices, if you're really ashamed of your Jewishness, you're unlikely to put Jewish in the title. Um, these are people who proudly demonstrate, and I can't talk for everyone because it is a hugely. There are people in that book who talk about being ashamed, and if they if they don't want to be if they don't want to be portrayed as being ashamed of their Jewishness, they shouldn't use the word. I mean, I could show you in that book the use of the word ashamed. So That's which, not name. Which book are you referring to? Your 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 time to speak out collection of independent Jewish voices. Some of them some of them t that I, I first came across the idea of Jewish shame from from some of these people. Well, I think these are there are many people who have shame in what is being done in their name. It's not the same. But it's thing. not being, but but that's that, that's where we get to the nonsense. This not in my name stuff. Israel isn't being done in the name of some Jewish academic working at a London university. That's just not what you know. That this is this is this is turning a major event into an event of the individual Jewish soul, and that's what I parody in this book. I don't parody. I don't parody the politics of the Middle East. I parody. Use the word, and it's right. I do parody it. People who think it's a about them and the ashamed thing make, turns it about them when when i mean there is a precedent for finkler appearing on desert island discs and talking about his jewish shame that has that has happened and when you hear that happened you 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 wince whoever you are i would have thought you would wince. so why are you turning this into a into your drama it's not it's not your drama well, there's a fundamental difference between being ashamed of being a Jew and being a Jew who is ashamed of what is explicitly done in their name. And I mean explicitly. But just a minute. Just wait for the moment. Because if you look at some of the statements of Israeli prime ministers, and I include Netanyahu and Ehud Elmet in that, they very clearly said what we are doing, we are doing in the name of Jews around the world. It's implicit anyway, but they have made it explicit. So people are entitled to say, hold a minute, you're not doing it in my name. I didn't elect you. I don't agree with your policies. I can't imagine anybody taking seriously anything that, that Netanyahu says about doing things in the names of Jews. I just don't believe well, Unfortunately, that. people take a lot of things that Netanyahu says very nor, seriously, nor it and seems, they need to. Nor it seems to me, can you say, when I'm being anti-Zionist, I'm not being anti-Jew. Jewish because I distinguish Israel from the Jews and then say I am as a, as a Jew ashamed of what's happening happening in Israel which renders it all a Jewish experience again I mean I think to that degree some of the people that we you know that, that whose names we are not mentioning but who we are thinking about are conflating are wanting it both ways it's this is not a Jewish thing but it is a Jewish thing and um, I'm making a political I'm making a political um description here i'm doing a political description here of something i don't care about but in fact i'm talking about the, the state of my own nashomi keep your nashomi out of it is what is is, is what i want to say it's not it actually isn't about you whatever netanyahu says there are people i dare say who do take the position 
that you portray here. But that's why I say it's a parody, because you've taken um, a, a, a small number of people who speak in those terms, and in a way you've made unserious the vast majority of people uh, who are involved in these sorts of networks, these sorts of initiatives. And I ask you the question, do you think all Jews should sit quiet while these huge excesses, many would see them as un-Jewish deeds, uh, are committed in their name? And they are committed in their name, and they do suffer the consequences, because if anti-Semitism increases as a result of that, they will be on the receiving end. That's a very, very dangerous point to make because it half justifies it. That half justifies the anti-Semitism. It, that half says, if this happens, I'm not surprised. I'm not here as a spokesman for independent Jewish voices, but in many ways, independent Jewish voices is a very Jewish movement because what it's doing is creating a space for a big debate. I'm as much for debate as you are, and I agree with you entirely about what it is that we are good at and what it is that we are for. But do you really think it's useful? Do you really think it's opening up debate? Um, Let me put this another way. How do you feel as a man when you see Jews in Trafalgar Square holding up posters saying we are all Hezbollah? How do you feel? Do you feel this is good dissent? How terrific that, that there are some Jews who are all Hezbollah when you, I presumably, are not Hezbollah? No, I, 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 I have no sympathy for the Hezbollah movement or their ideology. Uh, and whether they're Jews or otherwise, uh, I don't applaud them for holding up such uh, banners. But again, you're taking the odd exception and you're in danger of generalizing it so people end up with an impression that that is reflective of uh, dissent in, uh, among well, Jews. Well, I don't in, in my novel. In my novel, there's a whole range of voices and some are fatuous and some are not and some are serious and some are quiet and some are noisy and hairy. In my novel, which is a, which is, which, which is a novel, I don't take any particular position. And we agree absolutely about dissent, though I, about the importance of Jewish dissent, though I'm not, as, I'm not as convinced as you are that there has ever been a, truly a movement that's worked in this country that's tried, to, that's tried to shut down dissent about Israel. I don't think that was ever there. There are official voices. There are rabbinical voices that would rather we said this than that. But otherwise, I mean, what happens now is it get, we, get, we have the independent Jewish voices and similar described as kind of heroes for daring to say something against Israel. Whereas, in fact, that is now the conventional position to take. That is now the easy position. The he- the, the, a hero, an intellectual hero in this country, would be a Jewish academic that would dare to stand up before his students and say something for Israel. He would be your hero. Well, it depends what he says for Israel. I mean, Anything I, for Israel would make well, him a hero. I, I say many things for Israel. I try, I mean, I try to be analytical in my approach uh, and therefore to be fair in what I say which is praiseworthy and what I say that is critical. Um, I do fear there is almost a suicide wish on the part of uh, Israel in recent years. I think it's lost its way. I think it's lost its soul. I don't regard Jews who stand by everything it does as their true friends because I think they're like uh, lemmings in the back of the van which is being driven over the cliff. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for people to say that they don't think the whole idea of a Jewish state and Jewish national self-determination was a good thing. I actually think it wasn't just a good thing. I think it was inevitable and necessary because of the history of the Jews within Christian Europe, um, that they, they were escaping from oppression, from exclusion, 
Uh, you're calling on me to end. No, well, I feel that I feel that as ever, the Holocaust is not far from rearing its head once more. It sounds like one of the debates that uh, Sam and Libor have in the Finkler question. So I think that is a, a good a good place to, to point one to the Finkler question for further uh, for further debate about this the, the very Finkler question. Also, to a time to speak out if you like to read more about Tony Klug uh, in the Independent Jewish Voices. You have written uh, much elsewhere as well, Tony. Uh, and for that moment, we're going to have to leave it there. We will return to uh, Howard Jacobson's book and uh, a place for Jewish debate a little bit later on Sound Jewish. But for now, Tony Klug, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. And to let you know that Howard will be discussing his book in a special JCC Opinion Soup event, uh, Are Jews Growing Ashamed of Being Jewish? That's the form of the debate. It's at the Hampstead Town Hall next month. See our blog for more details. Once the big ones are out of the way, it's the turn of Sukkot. That's the festival of the tabernacles. When Jews remember the 40 years they spent wandering through the desert in temporary structures by living in temporary structures. Sukkah in the singular, Sukkot in the plural. Well, we don't quite live in them nowadays, but build them and eat in them. That's the tradition anyway. However, for all but the most religiously observant, this festival can be slightly overlooked. Not, however, in New York City, where they're celebrating in a big way. Starting on September the 20th, a dozen high-concept Sukkot designed by serious architects will be on display in Union Square at the heart of Greenwich Village. The Sukkah design teams are all finalists in a competition called Sukkah City, launched five months ago. Reporter Eric Malinsky spoke to the creative minds behind Sukkah City to find out why they think this is one festival in need of more attention. You know how in Hollywood they rate stars as A-list, B-list, or C-list? Well, the Jewish holidays could be ranked that way too, at least for secular Jews. Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and Passover get top billing. Hanukkah used to be a C-list holiday, but American Jews bumped it up to the B-list to compete with Christmas. Roger Bennett is the co-founder of Reboot, which was one of the organizers of Sukkah City. Growing up in Liverpool, he says Sukkot was more like a D-list holiday. Sukkot for us meant the local synagogue at Sukkot, where they would by rote just roll out the communal sukkah, uh, which was little more than a bit of plastic sheeting. And to give it a bit of pathetic cheer, annually they dust off some plastic uh, fruit. Roger's colleague in New York, Josh Four, has been thinking a lot about Sukkot. He convinced Roger that Sukkot is still very relevant. These conversations that the rabbis were having 2,000 years ago about what are the design constraints of the sukkah, you know, how, how tall can a ceiling be before it loses its essential ceilingness or how many walls does one of these things have to have before it becomes something that starts to feel permanent rather than impermanent or what is half a wall? Those questions, which are really about the metaphysics of architecture, are incredibly contemporary and, and exactly the kind of questions you would hear discussed if you walked into one of the top architecture schools today. He makes a good point. The hottest trend in architecture right now is prefab housing, and that's a sukkah. The sukkah does what architecture at its best is supposed to do, that you are invited to engage with these questions of social justice, all just by stepping into a little hut. So Josh and Roger created a contest for architects, combining the building codes of New York City's Parks Department with the Jewish regulations concerning the sukkah, as laid out by ancient rabbis. Now, those rules can get pretty specific. For example, a sukkah may be built on the back of a camel. A sukkah may be built in a tree, 
but not under a tree. One of my favorite, the sucker must have a roof made of schrach, the leaves and or branches of a tree or plant. The architects Henry Grossman and Babek Bryant took up the Sukkah City Challenge. They designed a sukkah in the shape of a sphere using plywood and an invasive species of grass that they collected from the marshes of New Jersey. Henry says all those crazy rules and regulations are fun for architects. Because the interesting thing about those rules is that, you know, unlike some of the other rules that we have to deal with in our lives, they, they actually seem very tied to, you know, what the intention of the sukkah is, you know, vis-a-vis kind of bringing people together. The contest also appealed to architects interested in social justice, like Rael Sanfratello. He works in Oakland, California, and his sukkah is made entirely of signs that he collected from homeless people. One of the interesting things we learned about the sukkah is that it commemorates 40 years of wandering uh, during Exodus. And we thought, well, the signs kind of represent a contemporary state of wandering in the U.S. and thought it was a perfect match. Sadly, this is a familiar sight in California. Homeless people standing at the exits of freeways, holding signs that ask for food, money, or work. Each of these signs is handmade, which was another part of the competition that we thought uh, related quite well, because all the measuring uh, systems for the sukkahs have to do with the relationship of the hand as a measuring device. And because these are all handheld signs, we again thought, well, what a perfect kind of poetic combination. In the end, they got 647 submissions from around the world, making this one of the largest architectural competitions in years. It really, I think, energized a lot of people. Michael Arad is one of the judges. He's best known for designing the September 11th Memorial, which opens next year. The Sukkah City project was really personal for him. One of the few memories he has of his grandfather was the time they built sukkahs together at his childhood home in Jerusalem. I just, you know, it brings a smile to my face thinking about it, trying to, you know, my uh, childish efforts to sort of flash the, these little thin uh, strips of wood to the railing around this little balcony. I don't think I completed the sukkah, but uh, it was certainly my first uh, building project. But Beck Bryan and Henry Grossman made the cut. Now they have to build this crazy thing. They'll join Rael Sanfratello, who designed the sukkah made out of cardboard signs. Roger Bennett and Josh Four are setting up all the teams of architects in a warehouse in Brooklyn. There's actually an ancient tradition that one is supposed to hammer the first nail into the sukkah immediately after breaking the fast on Yom Kippur, uh, transitioning from this most solemn of days to this happiest of festivals. Once the sukkahs are built, they're going to be loaded onto trucks. In the middle of the night, like a, a parade of elephants going to the circus and drive across the Brooklyn Bridge and, and build overnight the greatest city of suckers uh, the world has ever seen, at least since biblical times anyway. These 12 sukkahs will be on display in the middle of Manhattan. Josh and Roger actually want to sleep in the sukkahs, but they're not sure if the New York City Parks Department will let them. So will this project actually make Sukkot more popular among secular Jews and better known outside the Jewish community? As holidays go, Sukkot is one of the least theologically fraught sort of most generally joyous. Well, who can object to having a meal outside with your family in the fall? Somebody in one of these discussions talked about it being like the Jewish equivalent of a Christmas tree. And in that sense of kind of bringing these things out year after year, sort of dusting them off, putting them back up, there's something very nice about it. If you can't make it to New York, don't worry. Next year, Roger and Josh are planning on sponsoring Sukkah Cities in San Francisco, Helsinki, 
Melbourne and London. Eric Malinsky reporting there. That feature was first broadcast on Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast from the American Jewish news and cultural website Tablet. For more details, check out our Sounds Jewish blog. Howard, did you ever have a sukkah at home? We had something happened in the garden. Um, and I can't remember whether it was my dad did it or the next door neighbour did it, but that was what we liked. It was it was it reminded me of you know when you're a kid sometimes then they let you put a tent in the garden yeah. and you feel so you've kind of done an adventure but you're still at home. I, I very I liked it because I liked all that. It felt you know forest foresty and woodland nature. And I it brought a bit of a, nature. I to, don't to, see you as a nature boy, although although you, you did grow up not far from from nature itself because in Manchester you're, you're quite near the, the Lake District and stuff like that quite near 100 miles was too big a schlep for us i don't think i ever went to the lake district with my parents but they did take me out to the to the to the soccer either the one you know that we built or the one next door and i really loved it it did give us a little bit of countryside nearby i would have thought the soccer thing works according to you know how good how good the man of the house is with his hands can he build a little structure do you i mean there's all that business of hanging fruit isn't there around yeah now, that was very difficult for us because we didn't know what fruit was we never saw fruit we Tins. grew up poor and in manchester what was fruit tin, so i don't know what tin we pineapple is tin that allowed tin of pineapple. <laughs> do you think we could ever have a sukkah city in london it's it does seem to me that the, the, the new york that we heard from there uh it, it does require for, for union square to be taken over not for 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 you know for just for yom kippur and rosh hashanah for big the ones that everyone know but for sukkot you know this is a, a whole city de- dedicating a, a grand thoroughfare and a very famous landmark to all these things that's a that's a very kind of you know out and proud kind of culture there well but new york is new york is a, is is a, is jewish culture isn't it what's you know dis- what makes new york absolutely distinct is well it's the it's the it's uh, Irishness, Italianness, and Jewishness. So you could get away with it there, and there are enough people who would be interested. I'm not sure whether there'd be enough interest here, but you never know. One could persuade Boris to let us do something like that in Trafalgar Square. It's a cost for you, as you say. Suckers. Suckers. Suckers is how you say it. Okay. No one outside Manchester knows how to pronounce things Hebrew or Yiddish. Suckers. Suckers. I shall remember that. How would Jacobson do stay there? We're talking about more Jewish buildings in a minute. From structures temporary to structures more permanent, you heard me mention them often. Our friends and sponsors at the Jewish Community Centre for London are organising a huge range of events, cultural, political and everything in between, from one end of London to the other. But the plan is not for them to be nomadic forever, but to eventually have their own home. Work kicks off this very month with demolition tractors on site, poised to flatten the existing site on London's Finchley Road for what will become a permanent JCC, the first of its kind in the UK. With me now is Chief Executive of the Jewish Community Centre for London, Nick Viner. Welcome to Sounds Jewish. Thank you, Jason. It's your own programme. So uh, I should I feel odd welcoming you. It's like that new that new bloke who went well, to Manchester City to coming here. for the first time because you're home. Uh, but it's nice to have you. Uh, so tell us exactly what is happening and where it's happening because the, the Finchley Road will be a familiar thoroughfare to millions of Jews from the UK who who, who regularly funnel up that way to go and visit their mothers on a Friday night. Wow, Absolutely. Well, the, we have demolition contractors on site. They've been on site for a few days, and next week I believe hoardings will start to go up. And work will begin. Um, the site, as um, many people know, is the old Allende Mercedes garage opposite the Camden Art Centre. And we expect by the end of November that all the buildings on the site will be flattened, uh, ready to put up our wonderful new 
community centre buildings. Many is the time, Nick, that I myself have gone past that garage thinking one day, one day I could buy a car from there. Well, of course, that will that envy will go now. I, I won't buy a Mercedes anyway. Uh, not because not because of the German thing, but because I can't afford one. Um, but now I will be looking. At, it's, it's a huge site. It's a big site. It, it runs something like sixty metres along the the Finchley Road and also down uh, down the hill onto Limington Road. So it's a very uh, prominent corner site, and it will give us the opportunity to put a, a splendid. JCC Pavilion, a three-story pavilion at the back of the site. Uh, there will also be a, a, a block of flats at one end of the site. We need to replace the existing flats on the site. But on the lower levels, we'll take the space over for JCC use. And one thing which I think will be really tremendous will be the outdoor space in the front of the site. So there will be a, a piazza that will be set below the Finchley Road with a, a protective acoustic screen. A Jewish uh, piazza. A Jewish piazza. There will be a, a purpose-built screening room and a wonderful multi-purpose hall as well as a lot of, of community rooms. So there will be lots of different things going on through the day and into the evening and all of the events that, that you describe will also be able to, to take place there. Howard Jacobson, we've talked um, before about ashamed Jews. Uh, having a Jewish community centre for London, a big building on the Finchley Road, this doesn't sound... Uh, or, or look or feel like the actions of an ashamed group. It feels Absolutely like very much an out and proud one. Absolutely not. Uh, it's terrific. And I'm delighted it's going to happen and I can't wait. Actually, I've done, I've been on a tours in America and done some of the JCCs there and they're fantastic. They are, and you, you see them there and you think, why haven't we got one? And I'm delighted. I'm delighted that we have one. I'm very curious to know, too, whether some of those flats that you mentioned, Nick, are going to be reserved for um, Jewish intellectuals. If they would like to be there, I'm sure, Howard, that if we could have writers in residence, artists in residence, it would be, it would be wonderful. <laughs> the, um, the, the, the point of the, uh, of the place is, is, is to sort of be, uh, I, I suppose, in a way, a secular synagogue in a way, but obviously we'll, we'll have Jewish. It, it seems like a meeting place, what the old shuls used to do for the, for the, for the ghettos, for the shtetls, in a and way. It's certainly a meeting place. It's, it's palpably not a synagogue. And I think very importantly, this is not a religious building because I think one of the things that is really, really important for us, and actually I think the debate... Uh, you were having, Howard, with, with Tony earlier, in a way is a sort of debate we want to be able to have with people who represent the whole spectrum of, of views and particularly the whole spectrum of affiliation. So unlike the United States, here in, in, in the UK, we struggle a little bit with separation between different parts of our community, between different denominations. This is for, for everybody, and it's a place where if you like all the baggage that you may have by belonging to one synagogue or praying in a particular way or, or not belonging and not doing something, all of that can be left behind and people can come and, and can enjoy being uh, in a Jewish space that uh, they can feel really uh, quite differently about. I was going to ask you, Howard, as, a, as, a, as an artist, as you say, you, you've toured uh, extensively around the world with your books and you've been to Jewish buildings and non-Jewish buildings and, and have Jewish audiences and non-Jewish audiences. Does your... Does your shtick, does your act change for Jewish audiences? Do Jewish audiences feel somewhat differently about you? It depends on the book. Um, and it depends and on the Jew, the, and, and, uh, and, and how I am in relation to that book. If it's a very, if it happens to be a book that's got a lot of warm Jewishness in it, I will, you know, I can, I can say this amongst friends. I will play it. There are, I mean, I've already had a, a, a trial reading of the Finkler Question, which is only just out, but to a Jewish audience in Manchester, and there are scenes in there where, where the non-Jew, one of the non-Jewish 
characters, Treslov, who but would love to be Jew, learns Yiddish and, and in a very English way starts to talk to his Jewish girlfriend and call her Bubbler and Fagler. And th- now that, you know, that, that just goes down very, very well with a Jewish audience because it's nice, to hear, it's nice to hear the comedy of the Yiddish just spoken. I mean, the truth is that there are some times when I feel it's so easy when you're talking to a Jewish room that I could just go in and go Bubbler, Fagler and then leave. And people are just delighted to hear it. And they're delighted to hear it used by somebody who writes in English and is thought of as an English writer. I wouldn't probably do the bubbler Fagler scene in a, in in a, uh, in where if I'm talking to you hey know, the why. Dean and Chapter of Wells Cathedral. <laughs> hey, and why is mixed? Hey, and why? <laughs> so I mean, but you know, but that's true of anybody. Yeah. Anybody, if you do a gig anywhere, you tailor make a little bit to yeah. your to hey your on audience. Rye, we should call it. Hey, on Rye is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nick Viner, uh, who the um, the chief executive of the Jewish Community Centre for London. Good luck with your building. Uh, I can't wait to, to get in the building uh, ourselves. But that is some some way off. How far have we got? To go? Uh, the plan is the building will open in, in 2013, so there's still a little a little while to go, uh, but we'll start to see lots of progress very soon. Absolutely. Nick Viner, thanks for coming on this month's show and uh, for the JCC's continued sponsorship of uh, Sounds Jewish. Huge thanks, of course, to Howard Jacobs as well. Good luck with the Finkler question to audiences, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. Thank you. Uh, good to you. Enjoy Sukhas or Sukkot, however you choose to pronounce and it. And to you and your listeners, the same. And to Tony Klug, of course, as well. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, it's goodbye and Happy New Year. Salam, shalom, shalom.